This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, which invests in educators and lifts up the Kansas City region and is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Okay, Washington is crazy right now, but we draw your attention to an emerging problem that could very well affect some of your kids. That is federal CHIP funding. Plus, the Senate passes its version of a massive tax overhaul, and they not only keep the teacher classroom supply deduction, but double it. Our teachers say, nice try. Also, there are more autistic characters on TV and in movies than ever before. Our teachers say that brings more awareness, but they still have some criticisms. All those stories plus kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Maddie Burkemper, what do you teach? Hi, I teach fifth grade. Rebecca McIntosh, what do you teach? I teach students at an alternative school, elementary kids. And Bakari Uku'u, what do you do in education? Middle school vice principal. All three of them are educators at public schools in the Kansas City metro area. Well, we have, what, two weeks? A little less than two weeks until Christmas break? We were talking about that Nine before days. we got on there. Nine, Nine days. days <laughs> for you, at least. A little bit less for Rebecca over there grinning ear to ear. <laughs> Just under 30 hours. No. <laughs> what? That's not true. That's not true. You know, oh, that's not true. That was a good one, though. Is there something we don't know? <laughs> no, there's not. Okay. There's right. still a lot of semester <laughs> yeah. left. All right, well, let's get to some of the topics we want to talk about today. With a fight over a GOP tax bill and the ongoing fallout over sexual harassment on Capitol Hill, you may have missed what is happening to the federal children's health insurance program, better known as CHIP. The popular program annually subsidizes health insurance for some 9 million low-income kids. It is targeted towards families whose incomes are too high to qualify for Medicaid, but not high enough to comfortably pay for other private health insurance options. Here's the catch this year. CHIP has not been fully funded since late September. It was not reauthorized by the Republican-led Congress at that time, and lawmakers have been at odds over how to negotiate a long-term extension of the program. This is mixed up with all the other budgetary and spending bill problems that Congress is having. But just this past week, Congress passed and President Trump signed a short-term spending bill that keeps the government funded for the next two weeks as of this recording. That bill does authorize money to be sent to some states like Minnesota and Colorado that are in danger of running out of CHIP funds in the very near term, that is, before the end of the year. But the long-term uncertainty for the program is creating increasing worry for many child health care advocates and state officials already. And there is a very real question of whether Congress will, in fact, come up with a long-term solution. So, Why are we talking about this? Well, schools play a key role in hooking families up to programs like CHIP. In fact, the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities points out that research in the past two decades has shown that school-based programs are the most effective way to sign kids and families up for benefits like Medicaid and CHIP. The center says that's the case because schools are literally where the kids are. Schools are often a very trusted place in a community. And to put it pointedly, there is a proven research-based link between higher rates of health insurance enrollment and higher academic performance. So schools have an incentive to sign their students up. So we wanted to have a discussion briefly, maybe, maybe not about the intricacies of the CHIP program itself, but just more about the impact of programs like it on students, teachers, and schools, and what it could mean if CHIP funding does, in fact, not come through sometime in the next few weeks. So, Rebecca, Maddie, Bukhari, 
I guess, first of all, do I, I want to know, do you know if your students have CHIP funding? Is that something that's readily available to you um, as you teach students? That information is available. It's not readily available, but if you tie in and you have a relationship with people in your building, if you work closely with your families, and quite frankly, the fastest way to get it is to work with your cafeteria staff and look at the free and reduced lunch program applications. Mm. Because in your introduction, the the income you're referring to, let's all just put it out on the table, it's the federal poverty level. We're not talking about income levels that are crazy to qualify for this health care plan. Um, this one's pretty close to my heart. I lobbied about this issue in Washington when I was there in October. We went, the Missouri team from NEA went to every congressional office from Missouri, and we talked about this with our legislators. Um, because at that time it was still, because at this was, time was it was not funded then. It was potentially still renewable. We were, we were in front of that 12, that December 8th deadline. Um, and we received such positive feedback from all the offices and all the staff. This was a bipartisan issue. People support this. People know kids need this program. Uh, Rebecca's in the policy weeds on this. I wonder from Maddie and, and Bakari's perspective, do you all – so what – I mean, what, what real on-the-ground effects could this have um, if this – I mean, funding – well, on, on a very basic off. level, the day-to-day, when the kids in my class lose health care, they don't go to the doctor. So you, so you stay sicker longer, and you miss days in class. So you're not in school. Um, fundamentally, the, when you have families, multiple siblings, you start sharing medicine. You yeah, know, I was about you to start, say med- I When feel like one brother runs be. out of asthma medication, you share. When one student has strep, you share the amoxicillin prescription. You, people run out by the end of the month. Um, and that affects everybody. Uh, Bakari, from an administrator's perspective, how do you deal with this? How does this affect your job? I mean, to Rebecca's point that when kids are not coming to school ready to learn, then it makes it a lot more challenging. Um, I think for us, then we, as an administrator, I try to make as many community partnerships as possible to try to fill in those gaps of what our kids can't have or it's not being uh, provided at home that we can help provide them at school so that we can begin to see kids who come in more readily to learn because if they're not, then it just makes all of our jobs that much more difficult. If a kid can't get access to to reading glasses or can't get access to asthma medicine, um, then that makes it just that much more difficult. So I think that I see why this is a bipartisan um, initiative because it does ultimately help kids in general, and I don't think any adult should be against kids. Um, But we definitely want to make sure that when those type of resources are not available, that as an administrator, that's what we start to do, look at other partnerships that we can bring in Mm -hmm. to support our kids. So uh, I think Bakari's point about glasses is the mm -hmm. one that cuts through me every time. Um, because glasses are so terribly... One, get, just getting the evaluation. You know a student mm-hmm. needs mm-hmm. glasses. You just know it. You, you see how they perform in class. You see them struggling to do what you're doing, either on a screen or on a board or on a piece of paper or in a book. They can't see it, and they're struggling to compensate in other ways. You try to get them. The glasses get broken. You get a second pair. You're str- it's, the, it's this constant carousel of the glasses, the glasses, the glasses. That one is my particular touch point. Um, well, and so this just this past week, actually, we just got um, two of our students some new pairs of glasses. They hadn't had glasses, and they were in dire need. I think it does a couple things. One, obviously, it helps them be able to see better, which helps them learn better. But it also builds trust with students because they see that you're actually here to advocate for them and to make sure they get what they need. And so it's not just that I'm focused on you moving a test score, but I'm also caring about you as a person. And I know that this is something that's going to help you in life and in long term. And so it builds a sense of trust and community with our students and our families when they see that we're actually advocating 
fighting and working to get some of those most basic needs met. Right. I mean, it, it, it strikes me because I, I don't think, and Bakari kind of alluded to it, you won't find anyone who says, oh, yeah, let's take away health insurance from poor kids. But, but yet, <laughs> we do it. But yet, it gets lost in the conversation about expanding Medicare, and so you have to talk in a way that people understand Medicare is not people leeching off the system. These are students in classrooms that use these programs. You know, it's not people refusing to work or receiving handouts. These these are glasses and dentists and asthma and teen moms and you know preschool kids that need nutrition. Keep an eye out for what happens to CHIP funding um, because it's going to be still be debated. And um, Congress is trying to put together a long-term spending package by the end of this calendar year, in fact, before Christmas, um, and it could be included in that. Also, while we're on the topic of federal spending, federal policy, we wanted to briefly revisit a discussion we had a few weeks back about the GOP tax bill. That conversation focused on the plan that was passed by the House. We zeroed in on a provision in the House plan that would eliminate a $250 annual deduction for teachers to use for classroom materials and supplies. Well, as you probably know, the Senate has now passed its own version uh, in the dead of night, early on a Saturday morning, we should say, a 400-plus page bill literally marked up with hastily scribbled margin notes and handwritten edits, but that's a different topic entirely. Uh, But we felt compelled uh, to at least give an update and ask our teachers' thoughts. Public school advocates remain worried about many of the Senate's bill's provisions. A proposed elimination of state and local tax deductions could gut school funding in some high-tax states like New York and California. Many economists predict those states would be incentivized to lower income and property taxes if those local tax deductions are done away with. And, of course, property taxes are the biggest source of public school revenue. Other goodies in the Senate bill, similar to the House bill, are aimed at incentivizing school choice policies, including a plan to allow families to use up to $10,000 of their child's 529 college savings plan for private school tuition. Yet in a significant break from the House version, at least as far as teachers are concerned, the Senate's plan would not only preserve that $250 deduction for teacher supplies, but would actually double it to $500. So that is a significant difference in the Senate and House versions that still need to be reconciled. So I just want to come back with an update. Um, Felt kind of our responsibility to at least update that situation since we did talk about the House version in depth. But for the teachers here today, overall, your feelings about the major education provisions that are in this gigantic tax bill. Well, I think a week later, the more we look at it, the worse it gets. Mm -hmm. And we knew it was bad even before they started marking on it and scribbling things in the margin. Um, (laughs) We knew it was bad before we even got the second draft. (laughs) Yeah, let's just get a a perspective from an English teacher's perspective about having handwritten margin Fundamentally, (laughs) as a assignment you turned in, unacceptable. It's going back, (laughs) do it again. That's not okay. I don't accept it. We talked about what had to be in it, and this not, it's not in there. By so, the way, Ms. B, I meant to write this. Ex- no, <laughs> no, not, no. Fail. <sighs> Epic fail. Um, it's, there's, there's little pieces that are stuck in, like just random bullet points um, that are just, they're unrelated to each other, and it's scattered through. And they're disastrous. It's the the 529 thing is getting a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. It's, that's a bad thing. It's going to siphon from up. the, um, you know, the party that that champions local control to now go after local districts' ability to have local control. Mm-hmm. The um, the implosion of the QZAB funding. This is the the refinancing of public bonds that mm-hmm. districts can use. Yeah. And I don't want to go too far away, but the district 
passes a levy after a lot of hard work. The patrons agree to support these investments. And then this QZAB program has allowed them to repay those early at lower rates, the refinancing, huge savings to the community. Mm -hmm. That's gone. Where's the incentive to invest in public schools now? You can't complain, though, because you know because you got your... Refund bag. And let's right. talk Not only about bag, the but double. That's exactly what I, I thought about. Have you brought that red duct tape and been like, why? And been like, tape, tape, you, shh, you, why are we stop? You can't, you can't complain anymore. That's we exactly we how didn't I just felt, give you your refund back. We doubled, doubled it because we can care keep it. about public education. You can keep it. Why am I spending <laughs> I am, my own money? I am, I am, uh, I'm, I'm detecting like, a little bit of sarcasm. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's okay. duct tape. Oh. tape it, you can't. My they're like, pressure. why are you complaining? We care. We doubled it. When have Democrats ever done that for you? So you, so you see that that little move, that little mm-hmm. gesture to, to oh double. Oh, my gosh. You, you see right through it. It's oh, insulting. Yeah. It's an insult. <laughs> it's insulting. It's say, a, say, yes. Maddie, Maddie, say more. Insulting. It, Do it, yeah. Maddie. You say it. I'm just going to sit over and be angry. Okay. <laughs> Rebecca's in the Rebecca's like in the weeds picking it apart and it's like that one provision being fixed per se and not just fixed but improved it completely cuts the legs out of any argument I think that I would make to someone in politics like I could go down and have all of these provisions mapped out and be learn to be as eloquent as Rebecca and Bakari, and I could practice, and I could sit down and present my case, and they'd say, but wasn't one of your major concerns that your refund was being taken away? Like, there's that one Instagram viral post of the teacher who has receipts taped all over her, mm-hmm. and she's like, this is my, like, this is what the provision goes for. And it's like, they've addressed that little fire so they're like hoping that people don't turn around and see a gigantic like dumpster fire behind them but to your point earlier around (laughs) systems the fact that we even need a refund that says that we're coming out of our pockets to supply our own supplies for our classrooms is problematic and then this is tied to you're reducing Mm -hmm. our district funds all the more all the more so that means I'm having to actually spend more than that $500 now Mm -hmm. so thank you for increasing it but I'm actually going to need even more increase because you're reducing the amount of uh, support my district can provide for me in my classroom. That is good. Uh, so I don't think I have to ask this, but um, you're not you're not persuaded by the the, the double deduction no. when put up next to the other provisions of this tax bill. I'm like, do we participate in it? That's where I'm at. When Many? I think that that I, I'm oh, like, you're actually saying that yeah. you would like I as would a do political like middle protest. fingers up to it and be like, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> like because then if I go in and complain and they're like, well, you took it, didn't you? I'm like, like, no, I didn't, actually. <laughs> look on Bakari's face. I don't know if this, I'll go that far. That's what, that's what this he, union I'm thug, I'm, this I'm union thug it, though, is di- digging that. I'm writing that no. idea down. You're going to? No, no, that's a good idea. Keep your $500. I want my yeah. school back. It's, I'm going to make T-shirts. No. It's, it's an insult. I don't know. I'll wear the shirt and still get my, redu- <laughs> my refund. No. Yeah. It's, um, oh, I paid for these shirts with that money. You're not getting that $500 back. You're not. It's. I know. Well, Maddie has her two middle fingers up. Nice. I do. <laughs> keep nice. your keep your five hundred dollars. I did it. <laughs> <sighs> keep your eye on that one too, because they're still trying to debate that. And President Trump wants that uh, that conference bill on his desk by Christmas. So keep an eye on this that. Is just, this is what happens when you just want to win so bad that you just do anything. And and the because fix, at the end of the day, it's gonna it's, it's whatever it is. It's not gonna adversely affect them and their. Um, yeah. friends. 
So they don't, yeah. So they really could care less. They don't care. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman <laughs> Foundation. <laughs> Good segue, right? Uh, the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Well, our next topic, um, I think will be an interesting one. The portrayal of TV and movie characters with autism is nothing new. Mm. You can think back to the late 1980s and Dustin Hoffman's performance in Rain Man, which at the time was hailed as an Oscar-winning performance and since then has garnered some criticism as we've learned more about autism. Uh, to more recently, supporting characters with autism have appeared in popular shows like Grey's Anatomy and Parenthood. And then, of course, there's Sheldon Cooper from The Big Bang Theory. A snarky scientific genius who many people say show hall- shows hallmarks of Asperger's syndrome, which I should point out was folded into a larger definition of autism in the latest edition of the Diagnostic Statistics Manual, the DSM-5. But portrayals of autism spectrum disorders are becoming more common in media and more central to plot lines and characters just this fall to TV shows. Netflix is atypical. And CBS is the good doctor featured two main characters who are on the autism spectrum. And there is a split among autistic people over these characters. For instance, actor Mickey Rowe, who is autistic himself, writes in Teen Vogue that Atypical, the Netflix show, too often trades on stereotypes of autistic people for comedic effect. He points to a scene early in the show when the character Sam is wearing noise-canceling headphones in a restaurant with his family, but it's done in a way that, at least in his opinion, gets the audience to laugh at Sam. He notes that while, yes, it's true, many autistic people do wear headphones at times because of sensory hypersensitivity, he says, quote, how horrible if young autistic people watch this and feel ashamed for doing something that helps them to think and function in the world. Meanwhile, Carrie Magro, a motivational speaker who has autism, writes for the website Autism Speaks that there is a, quote, obsession with autism political correctness when talking about shows like Atypical and The Good Doctor. Magro writes, quote, producers strive for realism in portrayal these autistic characters with the danger of not clearly understanding the individuality of each person on the spectrum. She says it's a razor edge, and the good doctor, in her opinion, does well navigating that edge. And new research published this month in the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders concludes that increasingly popular portrayals on TV and in film of autistic characters does indeed bring awareness to autism spectrum disorders, but also runs the risk of heightening stereotypes and misunderstandings. For the teachers here, what, I guess, are your students who are, are not on the spectrum? What are their perceptions and understandings of what autism is? And have you seen that change as media portrayals of autistic characters have become more common? Or... I think we have seen it change. And it's interesting because um, my kids in particular, I work with a diverse group of at-risk kids that have many different at-risk factors. And so I work with a lot of kids um, who have found themselves on the spectrum, and they are aware of that. They know their diagnosis. Um, And it's interesting to me over my time in the classroom that we now have conversations about it, that parents have learned more about it, that kids recognize that in themselves and in others, and they have a vocabulary to talk about it with, um, which is is a change. I think that's positive motion forward. and I agree completely with with the assessment of the exaggeration, the risk of stereotyping, um, the underrepresentation of female characters. 
that that are on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. All of those things are concerning. But I think we're at a really interesting tipping point to be able to talk about it, to recognize it, to even celebrate it, Dr. Cooper. Um, you know, at the same and still being careful not to um, go too far one way or the other right. on the edge. The students who who are on the spectrum, what what is their what are their days like? What are their interactions with peers like? And, and and how might others' perceptions of them affect them? I think there again, it looks different for me um, because everybody in our community is marching to his own drum anyway. Because you're in this so, alternative because setting. Because we're in an yeah. alternative setting and there's some flexibility there. And there's some support, supports in place for our kids to be able to do that. So would you say that that, that I think that it looks very a, different for yeah. a traditional classroom and, and the kids that are struggling to be okay in that environment. Do you think students understand, whether they, they're on the spectrum or not, do you think their understanding of autism is affected by, by media portrayals of autism, whether it be Dr. Sheldon Cooper or something they see in a movie? Not in my school. My kids don't watch Sesame Street and they don't – I can't see any of them having interest in – the Big Bang or The Good Doctor or um, the other one. I mean, also all three of those shows, like... Are not targeted towards It's a white male (laughs) character. So, I mean, that's that's something I think about is that whenever there's like, ooh, like let's start having media representations of people from the LGBTQ spectrum. Like think back, like who... You got Will and Grace, two white Mm -hmm. males. You have... Well, Modern Family, <laughs> two white males. Right. Like, I mean, they'll they know they probably if I were to ask them, they would know about it. But that's just not what they watch in so my classroom. So that's interesting, right? That's something I, I I honestly had not even thought about, and that's a great point. The the common autistic mm-hmm. portrayals are white males, and so that yeah. af- that affects whenever there's who something you, new, who like maybe who, who maybe students might assume well, has autism, and they're high functioning. White and that's males. what I was going to say. And right. so yeah. it's a spectrum for a reason, and I think we are way far on that, that high-functioning end at this point. Um, I think because these representations are fairly new in, in the sense that they're essential to the, the storyline and the central characters yeah. that at any time we always see the— we make it easy for it to be digestible by Americans and by, by the public at large. And so we are always we're going to focus on those high-functioning white males because that's an easy narrative to digest. Whereas if we're actually talking about some of the struggles of autism and, and mm. the different the spectrum of people who are on the spectrum, um, it's, it's less digestible and it's not made for primetime TV. How common is it to still have a student who is on the spectrum bullied because of their... Because of their... Um, Different differences mm-hmm. to pick on. Something. I mean, I why, that's why people. Yeah. That's yeah. why that's people why pick right. on people because they are different, right? So they right. they really capitalize on those differences and I didn't and highlight those differences. So I definitely think that being different is um, would increase your chances of being picked on. Whether you're racially different or you're intellectually different, those things are. I mean, and kids will be kids. Um, so I think that's part of it, I think, but at the same time, what I think Rebecca's point is that we're also able to have conversations of why people are different mm-hmm. and then how do we handle those differences in more positive ways and, and, and let those differences be value added versus, um, negative things that we, we harp on. So I think that that's where we are as a education system right now. So we're really recognizing because now we have a language for some of these differences. We can really talk to them and name them more accurately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this gets back to... 
Rebecca, you mentioned it right off the top of this conversation about how you feel uh, parents and students are both just more conversant in... I think that is the underlying positive message. This is something we're learning more about. We're learning the science of it. We the Just the, the depth and breadth of it in our classrooms is informing better teaching. It's informing better advocacy from parents. That's a positive thing. The aspect of use it as entertainment, use it as comedy, use it as exaggeration is troubling and is going to have to evolve. Our last topic we'll cover has to do with data and testing. There's new research out from the Stanford University. My graduate school alma mater, I might say. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. Stanford. Whoa. Yeah. Stanford uses a vast. What? <laughs> That's an impressive thing to yeah. know. You excited? Oh, I, I love my time as, as a cardinal. Uh, a new <laughs> research out from Stanford University uses a vast trove of testing data that its authors argue should have an impact on how we measure and assess the performance of schools and districts. Stanford's Center for Education Policy Analysis, run by the professor Sean Reardon, compiled and analyzed some 45 million test scores from 11,000 different public school districts. The study notes that's pretty much every school district in the nation. And the study focused on two numbers in particular out of those 45 million test scores. The average academic performance of third grade students in a given district based on test scores and the average rate of academic growth within demographic groups between grades three and eight as reflected by test scores. The authors of the study say they work with the assumption that test scores, quote, reflect the average cumulative set of educational opportunities children in a community have had up to the time when they take a test. So you have to accept that assumption. So... Gauging average third grade scores is attempting to measure what students in a given district come into school with, that is how well a community prepares kids for schools because um, oftentimes third grade or fourth grade is kind of when they start taking standardized tests. And then looking at growth rates between grades three and eight is attempting to measure what educational impact schools have on kids between ages nine and 14. Importantly, the authors conclude there does not seem to be a correlation between those two measures. That is, average third grade test scores in a district, a measure presumably of how well-prepared students are when they come into school, does not match up with the average growth rates over time, a measure of the impact a school has on a child's academic performance. Okay, academic jargon aside, what are the particular... Uh, practical implications of this? Well, it could make you more skeptical about judging districts based on simple raw test scores. This is illustrated very helpfully by the New York Times Upshot blog. The people there created a data tool out of this Stanford research that allows readers to type in the name of a district, pretty much any public school district in the United States, and it shows that district's average academic growth rate between third and eighth grade, as determined by this Stanford analysis, and more importantly, puts that district's average growth rate next to other districts in the same geographic area. A quick search will make you realize that this data creates a much different picture for schools' academic performance than you may have. So you can do this for your district in your area. The upshot actually highlights this phenomenon in the Chicago metro area. Much of the same dynamic between urban and suburban districts that play out in cities across the country plays out there to dramatic effect. But Chicago City Schools, Chicago City Schools actually has the highest growth rate of any public school district in the nation. Average academic growth of six years, showing that despite maybe some negative perception, schools in Chicago are doing something right. That's the conclusion of the upshot writers. Well, 
We asked the teachers here who are going to be on for this episode to at least kind of check their district's performance based on the Stanford data, come ready to talk about their conclusions and what this may mean for larger public school policy. We know we, we don't want to mention your districts just because that gives you a, you know, a little bit of cover talking about some of the sensitive issues we talk about on this show. But um, just based on the, the kind of the metro area results that you were able to punch in for the Kansas City metro area, are you, were you surprised by what you saw? Did this make you change the way you look at uh, the data that were often used to judge schools? I saw my district in a different light. Um, well, I wouldn't say a different light, actually. I think it just gave me more ammunition when I talk about my district because I already knew that my district was doing great things um, or doing better things that's being reported, I should say. We always are trying to improve. My, but we're, my bad, Bacar. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, that's, but it's very well put. No, and so I, I think that it's, it's important that people are able to see that and, and to see these type of um, data points differently. And I think that looking at growth is obviously what we should be most days of the week when we're talking about uh, achievements, particularly students who are often in poverty, often in very traumatized situations that I think it provides a greater context that if they're growing over time, which is our ultimate goal, it's much different than if they're performing at a proficiency or an advanced level for one moment out of a uh, a year. And so I think that seeing those, having multiple data points along the way that we can really see a trajectory and a trend gives us more um, context around the work that's being done in our classrooms. There's always kind of an overreaction to test scores. Oh, yes. Good or bad. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Do you think? I definitely think there's always an overreaction. I think both it could be like that one day the kids sat down and took that test, they did an awesome job, or it could be they completely bombed it. But I don't necessarily think it's always reflective of of their intelligence or what they've learned over the course of that school year. It's yeah. one piece of data. It's a right. it's a useful piece of data used correctly with other pieces of data. But they become the only piece mm-hmm. of data and they become overinflated and, and misused and misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well what I think yeah. this this data might illustrate this new set of data that Stanford compiled and, and the upshot allows you to analyze pretty readily. What it might illustrate is just how wrong-headed the use of some test score data is for purposes beyond just education, right? I mean, we, we, we see in Kansas City here, and I imagine it happens in a lot of other cities. I mean, entire real estate markets determined by what a district's mm-hmm. test scores are. Yeah, They put them on bullet on, on billboards. I mean, it becomes the, the, the sales pitch. What do you think are are some of the biggest misperceptions, misunderstandings that your families and students have or outsiders have um, about your schools based simply on test scores? That the test scores are talking about the same groups of students, that people think Mm -hmm. test scores are growth and they are not because the test score that gets put in the paper, the test score that drives our annual performance rating that drives our everything is comparing that group of kids to the other group of kids. It's not mm-hmm. the same group and what they learned. It's last year's kids and this year's kids. I mean, you're talking about like year-to-year like comparisons. Year-to-year yeah. comparisons, the number that you get looking at the magic number, X, it's not even the same kids. And so you're comparing apples and oranges. You're comparing things that don't match. So it doesn't make sense anyway. Like each year, um, it needs to be a fresh pair if, of eyes. If you want to compare what a kid learned, fine. Giving them assessment. You want to see from A to B. That's a growth mindset. That's the growth model. And that's what this new look gives us. But to compare my fourth graders to last year's fourth graders makes no sense because they're completely different fourth graders. Mm-hmm. You know, that those numbers 
are unrelated other than they read the same questions. Um, mm-hmm. It just they don't. I, it I doesn't hold add, up. The math doesn't hold up. Uh, interesting tool at the Upshot blog at the New York Times. Um, if you want to go and type in really any public school district in the nation, virtually all of them there, you can just type them in and you'll quickly get a, a printout back with other districts in that geographic area. You could be like Rebecca and just sit there for. I don't know, hours on end? Hours. That's <laughs> a, it's a very sad moment, but interesting. Oh, well, stay, t- stay tuned. We're going so to do kids doing. these days after the credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control in what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. You can like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. You can also find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Maddie. Oh, what are right you, out the bat. What are, do you want, well, you <laughs> you normally have a, you, a lot of lead up to your kids these days. Do you want to Mine hold are, off? They might, <laughs> might have been getting weirder. I need to talk fat. Tan, I'm just going to pick one. Tangrams. Tangrams. Yeah. What are tangrams? They are thin. I, I want to say 2D, but it's not because it does have height, minimal height. But it does. So it's thin plastic shapes. Like a right triangle, um, varieties of parallelograms, hexagons, you name it, I've got it in the tangram set. And um, the kids, they can make shapes, trace out the shape they've made, move the little pieces off to the side, and then challenge their friend to try and use the shapes to rebuild what they've drawn. Okay. Think of it like... um, Come back to me, maybe. It's I don't re- know. Actually, it's a really so it sounds very complex yes. mathematical yeah. puzzle. Yeah, yeah that's there's a visual spatial oh, yeah, piece to a it. Puzzle that yes. is that's great. tremendously difficult for a lot of kids. And this is good teaching. This is good teaching. Do they create it with? They trace it. They create a shape. Yeah. Okay. They they challenge their friend to recreate it. Yeah. Imagine like arranging a bunch of geometric shapes into a picture. You trace it, then you have someone else fill it in. Rebecca, what are your kids into? You know, we're winding down the semester. (laughs) Oh my god. It's a weird time for everybody. Everybody's in transition. We're testing. We're collecting our data. Um, And so I try to build in as many breaks in that as I can. Just for my own mental health, and and we dance a lot in my classroom, so um, it's gotten really techno this past week or so. The kids have picked some real techno stuff. It's loud and neon, and uh, it probably looks like a rave if my administrators are going by, so I want to apologize for that, but I'm not going to stop because we've got seven more days to get through. (laughs) But it's gotten a little weird in Club Macintosh this week. Snackintosh. 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 That's hilarious. That's her school name. Why do they call you Snackintosh? Because Ms. Macintosh oh, okay. blends, and if they oh. don't say mom or grandma, they forget and they say Snackintosh. <laughs> <laughs> and Bakari, what are your kids into? My kids have revived an old challenge, apparently, a year-old challenge called the Eraser Challenge, where you compete against your um, classmate and erasing yourself to see who lasts the longest. So basically they're burning their skins with erasers by erasing their skin um, to see who lasts the longest. You, you, literally, they take a pencil eraser and just start and they go erasing. back and forth on their arm mm-hmm. or on their arm, on their leg. And so you see a lot of our students walk around with band aids and nearsporn, hoping to not get infected. Oh, <laughs> it's quite gross. Nasty. Well, 
On yeah. that note, Bakari. It's sad. Thanks to our teachers this week, Maddie Burkemper, Rebecca McIntosh, Bakari Ukuu. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, less than two weeks to go. Be nice to your teachers. Be nice.